Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, the end of chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part... Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Uh, Good morning. So glad to see so many of you uh, stuck around town. Uh, I know a lot of you can't wait to get to the beach. Maybe uh, tomorrow. Who knows? Uh, We are in a series in this book of 1 Corinthians, a letter Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, and we finally come to the climax of the book. In many ways, I've I've never preached through the book. I've read it a number of times, but I've I've been struck by just how long it's taken us to get to chapter 13, and yet even from the very beginning chapters all the way back around Christmas time, you could just feel the momentum, all of the momentum of the book. Paul is just leading us to these verses here, so I'm glad we finally made it, okay? And what you see is, is that in Paul's mind, as he's writing to these Christian people in Corinth, the goal, if you want to talk about what, what is the goal, what should, we be, what should we be aiming our lives at as we pray for our children, what is it that we should be hoping for them to become, what, is it, what, what kind of people are we asking that God would make us, Paul would answer that question by saying, above everything else, we should be a people who learn how to love. That love is the end. Love is the goal. Love is the, is, is the thing that we should be reaching for, the thing we should be praying for, the thing we should ask God to be doing in our hearts, the thing we should be training our children in. 
the thing that we should want to be known for in our city is that that church is a, pe- is a, is a group of people who know how to love. Okay? So three things this morning about this passage uh, that I want, to, I want you to see. I want to take a little more time and, and show you how for Paul and everything he's writing to these people, the goal is love. So number one, the first thing is just that, just that the goal here is love, very clearly. Secondly, I want to talk about how it is that the gospel is the power source for love. In other words, it's what we understand to be what we call the gospel of Jesus that empowers love in our lives. Nothing else can. Only the gospel can. And then thirdly, the difference that that, that then makes. And in other words, how do a people whose hearts have been changed by the gospel live differently than people who've only had a, a very brief encounter or some, some incidental experience or spirituality? Okay? So the goal of love, how the gospel, gospel empowers love and the difference that a gospel-changed heart makes. So let's just look at these three things, okay? So first... What kind of people should we be hoping to become? What is, it, what is the work we're asking God to do in us, in our children? And then what, what, what is it we want to be known for in our city, okay? And I want you to see how Paul frames this uh, to really bring us to the answer to that question. First, he says, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 13, that it's not enough to just be gifted. Look at what he says. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels... But have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Now, Corinth, to the people that the city, that, that the, you know, where he's writing this letter, Corinth was a city much like the big cities in our culture, where the most talented the most um, entrepreneurial, the most ambitious, go-getter types of people congregated. And so the church in Corinth was full of talented, very driven, charismatic, action-oriented people with impressive resumes, okay? And you see some of those listed back in chapter 12 and in, in, in all that we talked about last week. Paul mentions apostles and prophets and teachers there, if you see. And those are gifts of leadership, gifts of entrepreneurial leadership that can ignite movements, uh, gifts of communication, okay? In verse 2, he also mentions this, this understanding mysteries, which would have been people with highly intellectual uh, gifts and gifts for teaching. Then there are people who, that, that phrase, faith that moves mountains, which also is a leadership-type gift, uh, being able to problem-solve and organize people towards a goal. That's what Paul's talking about. So the Corinthians in all of these descriptions were incredibly gifted. They were smart, they were talented, they were ambitious, successful, they got stuff done, but they didn't have love. And so what Paul's writing to them to tell them and what he's writing to tell us is that talent or giftedness without love is nothing. That smarts and ambition and success Without love and regard for others is spiritual nothingness. Now, don't miss the fact that this chapter 13, which we're going to focus on today, is situated in between chapter 12, which we looked at last week, which is all about how the, the, the church is a body of people with, with individual members, and everybody has their own part to play, and everybody has a gift or a certain skill set, a certain 
talent that they bring that's meant to be used to edify the body. That's chapter 12. Chapter 14 is primarily about prophecy and tongues and how those things get fleshed out within the church. But in the middle of all of this talk about spiritual gifts and all the talents that people have is this chapter, chapter 13, which is about love. Without love, that stuff means absolutely nothing. Jonathan Edwards, um, who was a Puritan pastor in, in New England in the 18th century, preached a sermon series from 1 Corinthians 13 that became a book called Charity and Its Fruits. It's an amazing, amazing book. You ought to, if you could, if you, could you know, if you could follow him and he's kind of dense and hard, but if you could take the time and the energy to, to read it, it would well be worth your time. The second sermon in that series he entitled, and they, the Puritans were into long sermon titles, okay? Here's his title, Charity More Excellent Than the Extraordinary Gifts of the Spirit. And here's, in the sermon he makes this argument. He argues that the fruit of the Spirit are more important and should be more greatly desired by God's people than the gifts of the Spirit. That the fruits of the Spirit are more important and should be more highly desired, greatly desired than the gifts of the Spirit. So love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, right? Gentleness, being formed in the heart by the Holy Spirit is a greater, this is his argument, that is a greater work for God to turn you into a patient person is a greater work of God's power in your life than for you to be speaking in tongues or prophesying or even working miracles. His argument goes like this. He says, If a man is endowed with a gift of working miracles, this power is not anything inherent in his nature. Though most commonly those who have these extraordinary gifts have been holy persons, yet their holiness did not consist in their having these gifts. The gifts, this is a great analogy, he says, the gifts are like a beautiful garment that does not alter the nature of the man who wears it. They are like precious jewels with which the body may be adorned, but true grace, true grace, in other words, the forming of the heart and in the heart, these attributes of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, and so on, true grace is that whereby the very soul itself becomes a precious jewel. So he says, spiritual gifts, all these things we've been talking about, are like a garment or like a ring that you use to beautify something externally that is otherwise very plain, but but a heart of love, a heart of love, a heart that's full of compassion and tenderness and kindness and gentleness towards other people, a heart that's being changed to be like God himself it is itself a precious jewel. So Paul's saying it's not enough. It's not enough to just be gifted. That can't be our goal. That can't be what we're, you know, we can't just be asking God, make me successful, make me, you know, good at what I do, make me a, you know, a person full of talent so people take notice of me. But okay, but the second thing here that's harder than the first because it's so subtle to see is Paul says it's not enough to be talented or not enough to be gifted. You need love, okay? And that means it's possible to use your gifts not to serve others, but, to, but, but selfishly to advance your career or to gain popularity or to achieve status in the community, okay? And if you do that, he says, you count for nothing. But the second thing Paul says, he says, it's also not enough to be good, okay? It's not enough to be gifted, verses one and two, but it's not enough to be good either. Look at verse three. He goes on to say, if I give away all that I have and I deliver my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. 
Now, this is a morally virtuous person. This is a generous person, a committed person, a person who's uh, even willing to die for the faith. Okay? If I give my body to be burned, right? But again, Paul says that's not enough. You need love. And here's what that means. It means that it is possible to be a good person, to help people, to be generous with your time and your money. It's possible to be very religious, very committed to your faith. But at the bottom, what you find to be true is you're not motivated in all you're doing good by love. It's just selfishness in disguise. And I can attest from my own personal experience, I've known a lot of religious, moral, virtuous, very good people over the years who are committed and faithful and in leadership in the church, but they were rude and impatient and stubborn and just plain mean. Anybody have similar experience? Being good's not enough. You need love. The goal is love. So how do you know? How do you know if if in you know if you've missed love and if in the training of your children or in your own life as you are really trying begging God to change you and make you a person like him, how do you know if you've missed love? And the answer is this list here in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Uh, we put it on, you know, what we do with these words is we put them on um, greeting cards or we read them at weddings and they become sappy and sentimental. That's not Paul's intent. This is an inventory of all of the things that the Corinthian church was not. Okay? Paul meant for these things he has to say about love here to be convicting for them to lead to repentance. So let's just walk through the list briefly, and hopefully there'll be a lot of repentance this morning, okay? Let's just, we're going to come back. We're actually going to spend the whole summer back in this list, taking it one by one and just talking about it. But this morning, very quickly, okay? Paul says, verse 4, love is patient and kind. But the Corinthians, we've seen, were impatient with one another, particularly in their differences, and they weren't very, they weren't very kind. They were, they, you know, they, they put one another off all the time. Paul says, love does not envy or boast. But the Corinthians, as we've seen, were full of envy and boasting, right? Envy, having an inferiority complex, that's what that word means. Um, Looking at others and wanting to be like them and to have what they have, okay? Or boasting on the other side, which is having a superiority complex, looking down on everybody else. And what Paul says, and what he reiterates here, is both are forms of pride. But love is not arrogant. It's not, that's the same word that we've seen a couple of times already. It's not puffed up. Love isn't puffed up. Love builds up, Paul said. Let's keep going. Love does not insist on its own way, but the Corinthians were selfish, right? Do you remember Paul saying in chapter 9, though I'm free from all, I make myself a servant to all. In other words, he says, I change my life to meet the expectations of other people, even though I don't have to, but the Corinthians weren't willing to do that. You know, they would say, well, I'm not going to change for anybody. I'm going to live my life the way I want to. Okay? That's the way they lived. I don't have time for stupid. Not Paul. And he says, love doesn't, love doesn't, doesn't insist on its own way. Love's not irritable. Love's not resentful, he goes on. But the Corinthians were all the time getting upset about something, anything, everything. They argued for the sake of arguing, right? They were constantly boiling over into controversy and division. Paul says, see, no, love's not like that. Love's not irritable. It's not resentful. 
Verse 7, love bears all things, he says. That means you cover the stupid things a friend does with love and forgiveness. But the Corinthians had no time for stupid, right? One little mistake. That was it. You're cut off. Love believes all things and hopes all things, Paul says. But the Corinthians were cynical and hypercritical here, oh, pray for me in this. They, this is what I do, like them. They only paid attention to the bad stuff and not the good stuff. Anybody else do that? And it meant, what happened was, it, it meant they weren't hopeful for one another. They gave up on one another. They quit on one another, right? Instead of believing all the way to the end for one another. And so Paul says, love endures all things. Love pushes through all the way to the end. It meets every obstacle. It has No exit strategy. Love goes all the way to the end. And so, can we just stop for a minute? Right? We need to stop looking at that list. Because it's not just the Corinthians that he's talking about here. It's us too. So let's just stop and repent for a minute, can we? Where where do you get caught? Now, I don't mean, don't yell it out loud. I allow you a little bit of privacy. But where do you get caught? And how can you repent? See, it's not enough to just be gifted. It's not enough to just be good. We need love. And so how do we become more than just gifted or more than just good? In other words, how do we become the type of people who are patient and kind, not irritable or resentful in these things? See, that's the second point. And the answer is in the verses at the end of the chapter where Paul says that there's something coming. He calls it the perfect. You see that? Look at verse 9. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now, that that word perfect is a Greek word, teteleon, which has uh, the root telos in it, as in, okay, telos. Think about this with me for a minute, okay? This is word word power made easy, right, from high school. Telos, as in telescope, which is an instrument you use to see things far in the distance. Or telephone, which allows you to hear people who are a long way away. So the Greek word telos means something like the goal or the faraway destination or the end or the completion of a task. And the ancient peoples believed that history was this endless cycle, always repeating, going around and around and around. But the, but Christ, the Christian worldview says that life and that human history is linear, that it's going somewhere, it's moving towards a goal, and at the very end, that goal, that's the telos. Now Paul says we see only a little in patches, but he says, but when the tetelion comes, everything that's imperfect and impartial will pass away, and he means that when this happens, we will finally come into what we've been created for. Tetelion means the thing you've been designed for or the fullness of being and the fulfillment that comes from being completely free to be and do what you've been created and designed to be and do. Now, let me give you an example, okay? Uh, A fish. Let me talk about a fish for a minute. Now, my son recently brought home a fish from science class that he was supposed to observe, (laughs) for a project, and I I happened to be on the phone with my wife when the fish made its grand entrance into our home, and promptly, uh, the fish almost died two hours into the project, because one of our girls, in being, you know, with her face up against the jar where the fish is, and so curious about the fish, knocked over the jar that he was in, and literally, as I'm talking to Ashley on the phone, she screams, 
and runs into the kitchen because uh, the girl, she comes in and the girls are screaming and the flesh is flopping and thrashing helplessly on the floor. And then, of course, you know, you have to get the fish back in the water, but who wants to touch a fish? And it's hard, and it was, it was hilarious. I can't convey how funny it was at the moment to you. But here's the fish flopping and thrashing on the floor, doing what he's supposed to be doing, but all he's accomplishing in his flopping and thrashing was to make my girls scream even more and make it more difficult for Ashley to scoop him up and get him back in the water because, you see, he was out of his element. A fish is built for the water, not for little puddles on the kitchen floor. And because he was out of his element, then even the exertion of his strength, all of his flopping and thrashing around are just, all they were doing was injuring himself and making it harder for the people trying to help him. But eventually Ashley got him up, got him back in the water. And you see the water, the water is the fish's on. The water is the thing the fish has been made for, his element. And so now when he swings his tail, it's not flopping and thrashing. Now, what? It's gliding. Because he's in the environment he was created for. And what Paul's trying to teach us is, is that the reason we have so much trouble with love is that we are out of our element. That as it stands right now, we are not in the element we've been created for. But the tetelion, Paul says, is coming. And when it comes, all of our potentialities and capacities will be realized. We will explode when this happens with fulfillment and satisfaction. We'll finally be everything we've been created to be all of the imperfections, all of the sin, and the selfishness will fade away and we'll be perfect when perfection comes. But what is it, see? This is what we have to ask. What is it that's coming? What is our tetelion? What's our element? What's the thing we've been made for? And Paul tells us in verse 12, he says, Now we see in a mirror dimly, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So the thing, according to the Apostle Paul, that we've been made for, the thing that is our element, the thing that's to us like water is to a fish, is an unveiled, direct experience in sight of God's face. To see, not through a veil, not only in part, not as Job says, and it's the reason I picked that passage in Job, Job says, Behold, God is great and we know him not. No, not to see through a veil, not only in part, not to know him not. Paul says face to face, not far away, not from a distance, to stare at God face to face the way lovers stare at one another. Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City uh, in our denomination, who preached a sermon on on this passage, he said it this way, and and I can't improve upon it, so I'm just going to quote him. He said, The thing you were built for, the thing you must have, is to gaze on the very beauty and glory of God. You need to have an experience of his beauty and glory, his love and his intimacy, and to know that you're delighted in. That's what you were built for. That's the ultimate, the face. Now here, listen, this is is vintage Tim Keller. He says, the smile, the smile of this face is what you've been looking for in all your achievements. The kiss from this face is what you've been looking for in all other kisses. The words out of this mouth, the mouth of this face, is what you've been looking for in all other words. You say, see, to live face to face with God, to know that he loves me 
He delights in me and to feel and experience his love and delight and affection without it. See, without that kind of experience, you'll go through life flopping and thrashing like the fish on my kitchen floor. But with it, you'll be gliding. Now, what's amazing about what Paul says here is he says, on the day when we see God face to face, then we will know him fully, even as he already knows us fully. Do you see that verse 12? That word know means deep intimacy and love. God knows us all the way to the bottom, and he loves us all the way to the end. He loves us completely all the way to the end. So when perfection comes, Paul says, then we will know him the way he already knows us. But that's, see, that's the amazing thing. Our knowing of God is in the future tense here. It's not here yet, right? The the Tetelion's not here. It's coming. And on that day, we will know him even as he already fully knows us. Our knowing is future, but his knowing is not future tense. His knowing of us is in the past tense here. Look again. It's not, we shall know him fully even as we shall be fully known. Pay attention. He says, no, it's we shall know him fully even as we have already been known. It's the aorist tense in the Greek, which is their... There's no English equivalent. It means a single past action. God has single past action already known and loved us. And that's the key, see? Paul's saying, I'm absolutely certain that one day I will be able to look on God's face. I'll have his smile. His face and his smile will be be mine. And that's that's the promise. That's what this passage promises us. But you see, how can Paul be so certain? And how can we be so certain? And the answer is that in some single past action, God came to us in love to rescue us and save us. And of course, when did that happen? When did that happen? You see, when Jesus was on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what's happening? Jesus is losing the face of God. He's losing his access to the Father. The face of God is Tetelion. For him too, it was to Tetelion. And, and then to lose it, if that's true, then to lose it would be the ultimate devastation, the ultimate pain. To lose God's face, our Tetelion, would be hell. And that's what Jesus is experiencing on the cross. But why? And the answer is that the, the Father turned his face away from Jesus in anger so that he might turn his face towards us in love and acceptance. Jesus Christ lost God's face so that we might always have it. That's the promise of the gospel. Now, what happens in your life when that truth becomes real here? <laughs> we do not yet know him fully. See, we, see we, still, we still see in fragments, but he sees us all the way to the bottom and loves us completely. And when we get a sight of his smile over our lives, when we get a glimpse of the radiance of his face and the truth of his love becomes real, then it changes us. Look at the assurance of pardon, if you would, again. At the beginning of our service, what happens when he appears and we see him? Paul says, we are not yet as we will be, but when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. What Paul's saying is, seeing Jesus makes you like Jesus. Beholding his love for you becomes the power for you for a life of love towards others. So listen to Tim Keller again because it's so good. He says, The delight of those eyes when it finally hits me 
will blast out of my life all the insecurity, all the fear, all the things that are bad about me. That kiss on my lips, the radiance of that delight on my face, the knowledge that this face wept for me. When I see that, it'll make me perfect. I'll finally be all that I was created to be. I'll be whole. So when we see him, Paul says, we'll become like him. So seeing Jesus makes you like Jesus. And the promise is, is that in the Tetelion, at the end, when he comes, we will see him face to face. Now we see him part, but, we still, but there's still sight. See, we still get glimpses of his face. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, let light shine in the darkness, has shown in our hearts, listen, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we get a glimpse, but it's only a glimpse. But even in that glimpse, he begins to change us into the people he will one day make us. But it's as we glimpse, as we gaze, as we see Jesus that we become like him. So last, let me, let me just finish. Let me just finish with this. Uh, what difference does this make then, okay? What difference then does it make? If, if the truth of God's love for me, if I could see on his face, the radiance of his love for me, how would it change my life? And in verse 11, Paul says, when I, was like a chi- when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now, St. Augustine in his commentary on this passage said that a childish person refers to a person who's emotionally unstable, who's selfish, no, de- no delay of gratification, impatient, all the things that we all know that kids are. And Augustine said that if we try to serve God and to serve other people out of an inner emptiness, in, in other words, a heart that's empty rather than a heart that's full of God's love for us. In other words, if you don't know you have God's face, right? If you, if you are moral or religious, and in, in being moral and religious, what you're doing is you're trying to earn God's face rather than knowing in Jesus Christ you have it, then what Augustine said is you'll be childish in all of your morality. In other words, you might be very gifted, you might be very good. But underneath the talent and underneath the moral virtue, you'll be insecure. You'll be trying to get love from people, to get approval from other people. So there'll be all kinds of dysfunction. Because, see, you'll be motivated by selfishness, not a genuine desire to help and serve others. And if, so if people don't recognize your goodness or recognize your gifts, you'll be irritable and resentful. And see, that's the Corinthians. They were gifted and good, but underneath, underneath, there was childishness. They were impatient. They got their feelings hurt too easily. They were insecure. They were selfish, only thinking about themselves. See, we need a sight of God's face in Jesus Christ that blasts the insecurity and fear out of our lives. We need to have our hearts so full of God's love for us in Jesus Christ that we're not being nice to people to get compliments or affection or to fill up the emptiness in our hearts but to be nice and to do good for the sake of love. And that's the difference. That's the difference between a morally restrained heart and a heart that's been radically changed by the gospel. You can be nice and moral, but full of self-love and self-interest. Paul says thinking and reasoning like a child and acting like a child, but spiritual maturity, growing up. See, the work of the Spirit in our lives and in our hearts is the process of God's Spirit going to work not just to make you a nice person, but going to work to literally free. Can you imagine? Can you? I mean, can you imagine living life free 
from the self-love and the selfishness that's so natural to every single one of us in the room. The Spirit of God is at work to drain us, drain our hearts of all of its self-love and selfishness. So look at that middle part again in the passage. Verse 5, love does not insist upon its own way. Its own way. Verse 7, love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. In other words, there's no, there's no selfishness in love at all. Love is completely focused on the needs of the other person. It has no exit strategy. And so a gospel-changed heart gives no thought for its own needs being met. Okay, now apply this to marriage, apply this to relationships, apply this to your friendships. You know, kids, apply this to your relationships with your younger siblings and see. See, a heart of love, a gospel-changed heart, doesn't think about its own needs. It doesn't even, it has no concern for its own needs being met, but it's free to risk being betrayed or ignored or somehow hurt by the other person because it's swimming in love. It's so unneedy, it's so sure of God's smile that it doesn't care if the other person fails to come through. Paul's describing a heart that that has already got a glimpse of the smile of God that is so powerful and so true and so real to the heart that it can risk the frowns of other people. This heart isn't always adding up accounts to see if it's winning or losing in the relationship. It's completely free of any self-interest and, and willing to risk and put itself out there for the sake of loving other people. Now, let me give you an illustration, then I'm done. Uh, in 2002, Sarah Hughes won the gold medal as a figure skater for America in the Olympics. She was uh, Wikipedia fact. She was the only woman ever to have won a gold medal at the Olympics without winning either a world title or an American title. Now, let me translate that for you. Uh, What that means is she came out of nowhere. She had no business even being in the running, and yet somehow, uh, even though she really never did anything else that was really great in her career, somehow she rose to the occasion uh, in these Olympic Games and won the gold medal. Now, how did she do that? And here's the thing. She had absolutely nothing to lose, so she included components in her routine that other skaters were afraid to try. I mean, she, did, she had the hardest routine by far of anybody in the Olympics. She did tricks and things and all those flips, and I don't even know what they are, right? I just, it doesn't even make sense to me. But she did all of these things that nobody else had the courage to do, and she nailed it. And the reason she nailed it is she had no fear. She felt none of the pressure the other skaters felt. She was young. She wasn't even supposed to be there. She had no business even being in the competition. She had absolutely nothing to lose, no fear, no insecurity, no pressure to perform, and, and so she went for it, and she nailed it. You see, that's a picture of a gospel-changed heart out in the world of relationships. I mean, why would I be afraid of somebody else's frown when I've got God's smile? See, if you're a Christian, if you're here and your faith is in Jesus, that means that you already... You don't know, you know in part still, one day you'll fully know him. He already, he knows you all the way to the bottom. He loves you all the way to the end. You have his smile lingering, lingering over your life, and so you have nothing to lose. And see, when that truth comes home, here's what this means. It means I can stop thinking about me, worrying about me, looking out for me, taking care of me, feeling sorry for me, 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 me. That's acting like a child. 
That's flopping and thrashing about like a fish out of water. And that's what a relationship where you're focused on yourself more than the other person feels like. And that's where the dysfunction and the trouble, marriage breakdown, and all those kinds of things happen. But instead, see, what the promise of this passage is, the power that is, that is promised to you in this passage, is that you can become a person. Instead, instead of thinking about me and worrying about me and looking out for me and taking care of me and feeling sorry for me, I can think about you. I can look out for you. I can take care of you. I can move towards you. I can love you. See, that's like, like gliding smoothly through the water. That's, that's our tetelion. And one day we'll be that perfectly. But even now, the promise of the passage is that even now, in faith, and through eyes of faith, as we get a glimpse of the Father's smile over our lives, even now, we can enter into that tetelion. And we can be people who really are able, we're free from the selfishness and self-interest of our hearts so that we can really move out in love towards other people. Don't you want that? It's hard work, but, I'm t- but think, it's hard work, but it's, but it's the opposite of thrashing and flopping around. It's gliding through the water because it's what you've been made for. And so let's pray that God would come and begin to do that work in our hearts. Can we? Let's pray. Father, we admit love is scary because uh, there, we have so much to lose. And that's why we, uh, we cower from it. That's why we, we get knotted up and we don't move out and risk and, and dare to boldly go after the people in our lives because they might hurt us. And so we, we lock up our hearts in a coffin of selfishness, trying to keep it safe from being broken by other people. And yet what you remind us is that there's no way. There's no way to keep it safe. Because if we lock it up in a coffin of selfishness, it'll change. It'll become hard. Uh, And we'll miss out on the joy and the blessing of the tetelion that you've created us for. A life of love and service to other people. That's where joy is found. That's where life is found. Not in insisting that everybody else make me the center of the orbit of their lives. But me orbiting myself around the people that you've called me to love. And so would you come. And in the songs we have yet to sing, would you give us... Uh, in faith, a sight of the smile uh, that, that you have, your smile lingering over our lives, your face radiant and beautiful, smiling down upon us because of the work the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. And may a glimpse of your smile dislodge all of the selfishness. May it melt away the selfishness and the fear and the insecurity from our hearts so that we might finally be free to move out in love towards other people so that you might be glorified in us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 If you're here and you're not a Christian, I hope uh, what, I, what I was trying to say and what I think uh, the service has, uh, the moment the service has brought us to is that as you go, uh, the smile of a spouse or the smile of a lover or the smile of a boss or the smile of a friend, none, none of those things uh, are enough to fill your heart up. Because you're totelion is the smile of God. And yet the promise of the gospel is, if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then because he lost the Father's smile, uh, then the smile, the, the Father now looks upon all whose faith are in Jesus. He looks down on us in the radiance of his face, in the beauty and the holiness of his face, and he smiles on us. And so as you are sent now by the Spirit, that's what this is, is a sending out to do the work that God has called you to. As you're sent, don't go. 
trying to be good, don't go, trying to be successful in order to gain the Father's face. Go knowing, in the words of this benediction, that you have his face, it's turned towards you in love, and let that be the power that fuels you as you go. To do good and to use your gifts uh, to bless others. So receive the benediction then. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord turn his face to you and be gracious to you. I I messed it up. I knew I was going to do that. See, in the most important day when we talk about these things is when I always do this. You ready? Let's start over and do that again. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may he turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.